we continue with part three of the opinion of the court in Moore v. Harper. Section B. The legislative defendants and the dissent both contend that because the federal constitution gives state legislatures the power to regulate congressional elections, only that constitution can restrain the exercise of that power. The legislative defendants cite for support Federalist Number 78, which explains that the wielding of legislative power is constrained by the tenor of the commission under which it is exercised. This argument simply ignores the precedent just described. Hildebrandt, Smiley, and Arizona State Legislature each rejected the contention that the Elections Clause vests state legislatures with exclusive and independent authority when setting the rules governing federal elections. The argument advanced by the defendants and the dissent also does not account for the framers' understanding that when legislatures make laws, they are bound by the provisions of the very documents that give them life. Legislatures, the framers recognized, are mere creatures of the state constitutions and cannot be greater than their creators. What are legislatures? Creators of the Constitution. They owe their existence to the Constitution. They derive their powers from the Constitution. It is their commission, and therefore all their acts must be conformable to it, or else they will be void. Marbury confirmed this understanding, and nothing in the text of the Elections Clause undermines it. When a state legislature carries out its constitutional power to prescribe rules regulating federal elections, the commission under which it exercises authority is twofold. The legislature acts both as a lawmaking body created and bound by its state constitution, and as the entity assigned particular authority by the federal constitution. Both constitutions restrain the legislature's exercise of power. Turning to our precedents, the defendants quote from our analysis of the Elector's Clause in McPherson v. Blacker, 1892. That clause, similar to the Elections Clause, provides that each state shall appoint, in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct, a specified number of electors. McPherson considered a challenge to the Michigan legislature's decision to allocate the state's electoral votes among the individual congressional districts, rather than to the state as a whole. We upheld that decision, explaining that in choosing presidential electors, the clause leaves it to the legislature exclusively to define the method of affecting the object. Our decision in McPherson, however, had nothing to do with any conflict between provisions of the Michigan Constitution and action by the state's legislature, the issue we confront today. McPherson instead considered whether Michigan's legislature itself directly violated the Elector's Clause by taking from the state the power to appoint and vesting that power in separate districts. The 14th Amendment, 
by allowing voters to vote only one elector rather than electors, and a particular federal statute. Nor does the quote highlighted by petitioners tell the whole story. Chief Justice Fuller's opinion for the court explained that the legislative power is the supreme authority except as limited by the Constitution of the state. The legislative defendants and Justice Thomas rely as well on our decision in Lesser v. Garnett, 1922, but it too offers little support. Lesser addressed an argument that the 19th Amendment providing women the right to vote was invalid because state constitutional provisions rendered inoperative the alleged ratifications by their legislatures. We rejected that position, holding that when state legislatures ratify amendments to the Constitution, they carry out a federal function derived from the federal Constitution, which transcends any limitations sought to be imposed by the people of a state. But the legislature in Lesser performed a ratifying function rather than engaging in traditional lawmaking. The provisions at issue in today's case, like the provisions examined in Hildebrandt and Smiley, concern a state legislature's exercise of lawmaking power. And, as we held in Smiley, when state legislatures act pursuant to their elections clause authority, they engage in lawmaking subject to the typical constraints on the exercise of such power. We have already distinguished Lesser on those grounds. In addition, Lesser cited for support our decision in Hawk v. Smith, which sharply separated ratification from legislative action under the Elections Clause. Lawmaking under the Elections Clause, Hawk explained, is entirely different from the requirement of the Constitution as to the expression of assent or dissent to a proposed amendment to the Constitution. Hawk and Smiley delineated the various roles that the Constitution assigns to state legislatures. Legislatures act as consenting bodies when the nation purchases land as ratifying bodies when they agree to proposed constitutional amendments, and, prior to the passage of the 17th Amendment, as electoral bodies when they choose United States Senators. By fulfilling their constitutional duty to craft the rules governing federal elections, state legislatures do not consent, ratify, or elect. They make laws. Elections are complex affairs, demanding rules that dictate everything from the date on which voters will go to the polls to the dimensions and font of individual ballots. Legislatures must provide a complete code for congressional elections, including regulations relating to notices, registration, supervision of voting, protection of voters, prevention of fraud and corrupt practices, counting of votes, duties of inspectors and canvassers, and making and publication of election returns. In contrast, a simple up-or-down vote suffices to ratify an amendment to the Constitution. Providing consent to the purchase of land 
or electing senators involves similarly straightforward exercises of authority. But fashioning regulations governing federal elections unquestionably calls for the exercise of lawmaking authority. And the exercise of such authority in the context of the elections clause is subject to the ordinary constraints on lawmaking in the state constitution. In sum, our precedents have long rejected the view that legislative action under the elections clause is purely federal in character, governed only by restraints found in the federal constitution. Section C. Addressing our decisions in Smiley and Hildebrandt, both the legislative defendants and Justice Thomas concede that at least some state constitutional provisions can restrain a state legislature's exercise of authority under the Elections Clause. But they read those cases to differentiate between procedural and substantive constraints. Smiley, in their view, stands for the proposition that state constitutions may impose only procedural hoops through which legislatures must jump in crafting rules governing federal elections. This conceitedly formalistic approach views the governor's veto at issue in Smiley as one such procedural restraint. But when it comes to substantive provisions, their argument goes, our precedents have nothing to say. This argument adopts too cramped a view of our decision in Smiley, Chief Justice Hughes's opinion for the court drew no distinction between procedural and substantive restraints on lawmaking. It turned on the view that state constitutional provisions applied to a legislature's exercise of lawmaking authority under the Elections Clause, with no concern about how those provisions might be categorized. The same goes for the court's decision in Arizona State Legislature. The defendants attempt to cabin that case by arguing that the court did not address substantive limits on the regulation of federal elections. But as in Smiley, the court's decision in Arizona State Legislature discussed no difference between procedure and substance. The dissent reads Smiley and Arizona State Legislature in a different light. Justice Thomas thinks those cases say nothing about whether a state can impose substantive limits on the legislature's exercise of power under the Elections Clause. But in Smiley, we addressed whether the conditions which attach to the making of state laws apply to legislatures exercising authority under the Elections Clause. We held that they do. Much that is urged in argument with regard to the meaning of the term legislature, we explained, is beside the point, and we concluded in straightforward terms that legislatures must abide by restrictions imposed by state constitutions when exercising the lawmaking power under the Elections Clause. Arizona State Legislature said much the same, emphasizing that, by its text, Nothing in the Elections Clause offers state legislatures carte blanche to act in defiance of provisions of the state's Constitution. The defendants and Justice Thomas do not, in any event, offer a defensible line between procedure and substance in this context. The line between procedural and substantive law 
is hazy. Many rules are rationally capable of classification as either. Procedure, after all, is often used as a vehicle to achieve substantive ends. When a governor vetoes a bill because of a disagreement with its policy consequences, has the governor exercised a procedural or substantive restraint on lawmaking? Smiley did not endorse such murky inquiries into the nature of constitutional restraints, and we see no neat distinction today. Section D. Were there any doubt, historical practice confirms that state legislatures remain bound by state constitutional restraints when exercising authority under the Elections Clause. We have long looked to settled and established practice to interpret the Constitution, and we have found historical practice particularly pertinent when it comes to the Elections and Electors' Clauses. Two state constitutional provisions adopted shortly after the founding offer the strongest evidence. Delaware's 1792 Constitution provided that the state's congressional representatives shall be voted for at the same places where representatives in the state legislature are voted for, and in the same manner. Even though the Elections Clause stated that the places and manner of federal elections shall be prescribed by the state legislatures, the Delaware Constitution expressly enacted rules governing the places and manner of holding elections for federal office. An 1810 amendment to the Maryland Constitution likewise embodied regulations falling within the scope of the Elections and Electors' Clauses. Article 14 provided that every qualified citizen shall vote by ballot for electors of the President and Vice President of the United States and for representatives of this state in the Congress of the United States. If the Elections Clause had vested exclusive authority in state legislatures, unchecked by state courts enforcing provisions of state constitutions, these clauses would have been unenforceable from the start. Besides the two specific provisions in Maryland and Delaware, multiple state constitutions at the time of the founding regulated federal elections by requiring that all elections shall be by ballot. These provisions directed the manner of federal elections within the meaning of the Elections Clause, as Madison himself explained at the Constitutional Convention. The legislative defendants discount this evidence. They argue that those by-ballot provisions spoke only to the offices that were created by state constitutions and not to the federal offices to which the Elections Clause applies. We find no textual hook for that strained reading. All meant then what it means now. In addition, the framers did not write the Elections Clause on a blank slate. They instead borrowed from the Articles of Confederation, which provided that delegates shall be annually appointed in such manner as the legislature of each state shall direct. The two provisions are closely parallel, and around the time the Articles were adopted by the Second Continental Congress, multiple states regulated the manner of appointing delegates 
suggesting that the framers did not understand that language to insulate state legislative action from state constitutional provisions. The defendants stress an 1820 convention held in Massachusetts to amend the Commonwealth's Constitution, after a Boston delegate proposed a provision regulating the manner of federal elections. Joseph Story, then a justice of this court, nixed the effort. In Story's view, such a provision would run afoul of the Elections Clause by assuming a control over the legislature, which the Constitution of the United States does not justify. But Story's comment elicited little discussion and reflects the views of a jurist who, although a brilliant and accomplished man, was not a member of the founding generation. Part 5 Section A Although we conclude that the Elections Clause does not exempt state legislatures from the ordinary constraints imposed by state law, State courts do not have free reign. State courts are the appropriate tribunals for the decision of questions arising under their local law, whether statutory or otherwise. At the same time, the Elections Clause expressly vests power to carry out its provisions in the legislature of each state, a deliberate choice that this court must respect. As in other areas where the exercise of federal authority or the vindication of federal rights implicates questions of state law, we have an obligation to ensure that state court interpretations of that law do not evade federal law. State law, for example, is one important source for defining property rights. At the same time, the federal constitution provides that private property shall not be taken for public use without just compensation. As a result, states may not sidestep the takings clause by disavowing traditional property interests. A similar principle applies with respect to the contracts clause, which provides that no state shall pass any law impairing the obligation of contracts. In that context, we accord respectful consideration and great weight to the views of the state's highest court. Still, in order that the constitutional mandate may not become a dead letter, we are bound to decide for ourselves whether a contract was made. Cases raising the question whether adequate and independent grounds exist to support a state court judgment involve a similar inquiry. We have in those cases considered whether a state court opinion below adopted novel reasoning to stifle the vindication in state courts of federal constitutional rights. Running through each of these examples is the concern that state courts might read state law in such a manner as to circumvent federal constitutional provisions. Therefore, although mindful of the general rule of accepting state court interpretations of state law, we have tempered such deference when required by our duty to safeguard limits imposed by the federal constitution. Members of this court last discussed the outer bounds of state court review in the present context in Bush v. Gore, 2000. Our decision in that case turned on an application of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. 
In separate writings, several justices addressed whether Florida's Supreme Court, in construing provisions of Florida statutory law, exceeded the bounds of ordinary judicial review to an extent that its interpretation violated the Elector's Clause. Chief Justice Rehnquist joined in a concurring opinion by Justice Thomas and Justice Scalia, acknowledged the usual deference we afford state court interpretations of state law, but noted areas in which the Constitution requires this court to undertake an independent, if still deferential, analysis of state law. He declined to give effect to interpretations of Florida election laws by the Florida Supreme Court that impermissibly distorted them beyond what a fair reading required. Justice Souter, for his part, considered whether a state court interpretation transcends the limits of reasonable statutory interpretation to the point of supplanting the statute enacted by the legislature within the meaning of Article II. We do not adopt these or any other test by which we can measure state court interpretations of state law in cases implicating the Elections Clause. The questions presented in this area are complex and context-specific. We hold only that state courts may not transgress the ordinary bounds of judicial review such that they arrogate to themselves the power vested in state legislatures to regulate federal elections. Section B. We decline to address whether the North Carolina Supreme Court strayed beyond the limits derived from the Elections Clause. The legislative defendants did not meaningfully present the issue in their petition for certiorari or in their briefing, nor did they press the matter at oral argument. Counsel for the defendants expressly disclaimed the argument that this court should reassess the North Carolina Supreme Court's reading of state law. When pressed whether North Carolina's Supreme Court did not fairly interpret its state constitution, counsel reiterated that such an argument was not our position in this court. Although counsel attempted to expand the scope of the argument in rebuttal, such belated efforts do not overcome prior failures to preserve the issue for review. State courts retain the authority to apply state constitutional restraints when legislatures act under the power conferred upon them by the Elections Clause. But federal courts must not abandon their own duty to exercise judicial review. In interpreting state law in this area, state courts may not so exceed the bounds of ordinary judicial review as to unconstitutionally intrude upon the role specifically reserved to state legislatures by Article I, Section 4 of the Federal Constitution. Because we need not decide whether that occurred in today's case, the judgment of the North Carolina Supreme Court is affirmed. It is so ordered. We've come to the end of the opinion. Until next episode, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.